0: G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist, Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings.
1: G'day, Dad. How are you going today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again, and how are you? I'm
0: going well. I yeah, enjoyed last week's episode, and I'm very much looking forward to today's episode, Dad, because this is something that obviously is going to be relevant to relationships and everything that we spoke about to do with last week's podcast, But I think it's actually more than that, like I actually came across uh, what we're going to be talking about today on Twitter and it was talking about business partnerships, Dad. So I suppose I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but we've called today's episode Relationships, Typical Traps to
1: Avoid. So, Dad, what are we going to be talking about today? Okay, well this also relates to the work of the Gottmans, who we highlighted last week, John and Julie Gottman, who've spent decades of research looking at what can enhance marriages. And one thing that was really striking is they also did research showing what could predict divorce. And they were able to predict divorce with remarkable accuracy. I think it was about 90% accuracy... Looking at the particular factors that we're going to talk about today, there's a particular very destructive pattern that tended to develop in relationships when people were heading towards divorce. And so we're going to talk about some of these characteristics and if people find that they're at risk of going a bit down that slippery slope, well, it's really worth picking up on these things and avoiding these traps because that's where people might get a real return for effort not going down this route that tends to lead things getting worse and worse. And unfortunately, like we see many people in marital therapy or couples therapy in our practice, you see people at different stages down this slippery slope quite often. And so by spelling it out on this podcast, it gives people an idea of the particular destructive things to watch out for and certainly look to pull back from that.
0: And it's one of those things, like, I suppose, like, so many aspects of psychology, Dad, where I think if you do develop an awareness about some of this sort of stuff, you can't help but change your behavior in a way. Like, I remember hearing that about, you know, that 90% accuracy at predicting divorce in about 15 minutes with couples. I think, like that's a bit scary in some ways to know that there are maybe behaviours that you know we could potentially be exhibiting within a relationship that are just so destructive to the point where it's just a matter of time before the relationship ends. But I think once you do look at some of the aspects that we're going to be talking about today, it's something that you probably do recognise a little bit more in terms of, you know, you probably try and stay away from these behaviours a little bit, Dan, but I think there are times maybe where you do get into these traps in a certain way with your behaviour, not necessarily in a relationship at all times, but even, you know, say other people that you come across, you can understand how, I suppose, people can fall into these traps, but I, I think having an awareness of what they can be is maybe the first step to avoiding them.
1: Yes, yeah, so one thing that makes it so interesting is when marital therapists generally, couple therapists were asked to predict divorce With a significant number of people, their accuracy rate was only about 53%, I believe. It was only about a coin toss. So that means that the kind of things that the Gottmans identified were not necessarily straightforward, even for people who are very experienced at working with couples in conflict. Whereas after you hear the pattern that the Gottmans described, then it's recognisable and it can make sense of why these reactions are particularly destructive.
0: And it's something we spoke a little bit about last week on the podcast, Dad, but I really like this sentiment from the Gottmans that love is a verb, not a noun, in terms of, you know, it's something that we've got to be active about and we've got to work on a little bit. It's not as if it's just something, you know, passive that we either have or we don't have and, you know, if we do have it at one stage, that means it's always <laughs> going to be there and we can take it for granted in that sense. But oh, I suppose some of what we're going to be talking about today is maybe the practicalities, Of what we can do in an active sense in terms of maybe if we recognise some of these things within ourselves, we can go, okay, maybe I need to, you know, look within a little bit here and and maybe look at how I can change that behaviour a little bit. Or even within our partner, if we recognise some of these behaviours, we can have that conversation and sort of say, you know, I'm feeling a little bit uneasy about the way that this went.
1: Yes, and when we talk about the traps and the problems today, it's worth doing so against that recognition of the things that really enhance a relationship. So again, we can refer back to our last week's episode about ways of enhancing couple relationships. But one of the main things about it is that a positive relationship, a healthy relationship will be based on a deep friendship. And the other thing that we might not have highlighted last week is with positive relationships there are a lot more positive messages and gestures given out than negative reactions of a ratio not even just about three to one. In positive psychology, we talk about having an optimistic outlook or a favourable outlook or a mentally healthy approach is going to be having about three positive thoughts or gestures, messages to negative, but in intimate relationships, it can even be about five to one. Five positive to one negative. Now that's a lot of positive messages potentially, especially if people are in a bit of a pattern of some kind of negative reactions or a criticism or a sarcastic quip or otherwise an ignoring gesture. There are different ways that people can express positivity or negativity, but let's start with that as a rule of thumb. Five positive to one negative, that's a whole lot of positive messages that's worth generating and positive gestures. And that's where our podcast last week talked about how the Gottmans described ways of turning toward one's partner rather than away, showing admiration, showing fondness and admiration, expressing affection for each other. It was part of what they described as a positive sentiment override. Now, if people are doing those kind of things that we highlighted last week they're less likely to lapse into these patterns that we described this week, the traps.
0: And I suppose the other thing that really stands out for me there too is that, you know, I imagine at times that potentially if you're having a little bit of conflict, something like say five positive comments to one negative comment, that can feel, you know, maybe a a little bit away at times in terms of, you know, maybe you've been having a couple of... Negative comments in a row, and that's a whole lot of positive comments that you've then got to have, you know, one after the other to, I suppose, get the kilter back that way. But I suppose what last week's podcast highlighted to me about that is, you know, it's not as if you necessarily need to think, all right, how am I going to, for example, get a hundred positive comments so then I allow myself, you know, five negative comments or whatever it is. Like it seems to me that having that emphasis on sort of like building up almost the positive interactions, sort of creating that kind of positive chain reaction. I suppose over time almost it seems the five to one positive to negative comments can take care of itself in the sense that it becomes a lot easier if we are being active about these almost micro actions that we can
1: take to affirm and validate the other person. Yes I think that's a good point like ultimately we're not going to get too caught up in the arithmetic of it but it's recognizing the importance of that positive energy it's the importance of recognizing that principle of turning toward your partner rather than away and also it's about noticing the positive gestures that your partner shows you as we described last week that in happy relationships partners tend to notice pretty much all the gestures the positive gestures that their partner shows towards them whereas in troubled relationships people are more likely to notice only about half maybe if that and so there's a degree of positivity or there's some kindness or some friendliness that a partner might be showing, but it can be missed.
0: Well, I think that leads us nicely, Dad, because I wonder if, you know, missing 50% of the validating actions that your partner makes, that could potentially be, say, one factor that could predict divorce, but I wonder what some of those other factors that the Gottman spoke about are because like 90% accuracy within 15 minutes. Like, oh, you know, Dad, I, I follow sport and I love sport. I reckon I'd have 90% accuracy knowing which team's going to win in the first 15 minutes of a match. Like that's, that's incredible identification in any sense, I think.
1: Yes, and one of the things I think that's most fascinating about this is one of these factors would only have been identified by an engineer. John Gottman was a former engineer, and there are a few engineers who've done brilliant things in psychology, and he certainly stands out as one of them. And so one of the things that they did with couples is they had them sit on a platform, sit in chairs on a platform that was mounted on a spring. So it was like a moving platform or could move, if people themselves were to move, and they asked the couples to discuss a hot topic. Now what happened when troubled couples would discuss a hot topic? Their arousal level was higher. Their gestures and movements would be greater. So with that higher arousal level when discussing a hot topic, the spring, the platform, would move more. They could measure the movements of the platform and they found that when couples were in trouble, rather than being more calm and composed and having an interest in what the other one would say, they're more reacting, probably you this and you that and getting angry with each other or frustrated with each other and so the platform would wobble. Now what genius was that? To think that up and recognise that and have a way of measuring it, that was one of the factors that came up, a harsh start-up to arguments. So the arousal was the harsh startup. When they started to talk about a hot topic, very quickly it would escalate and get out of hand.
0: Well, that's a fascinating experiment that John Gottman did create there. But I suppose what stands out to me about that is like being on that platform, it's probably going to be a subconscious reaction in a way that we're going to have in that situation. It's not as if we're going to think, all right, now I'm going to get really angry to forcefully put my point across a little bit more. And I suppose what that makes me wonder too is, like, it seems that maybe that harsh starting up in an argument, like, in terms of where it comes from, like, if there is that subconscious aspect to it, like, to me, it seems a little bit, you know, chicken or egg in terms of is it the reactions that we're having at that stage, which is maybe contributing to sort of someone's, you know, negative reaction towards us? Or is it maybe the internal kind of physiological problems that are causing that reaction in the first place? And it seems maybe to suggest to me that it's a little bit of both. But also I wonder if what we can do about that is like, again, it seems like, well, maybe you know that on the positive side of things we can either i suppose insert a chicken or <laughs> insert an egg into the formula in terms of you know like if we just focus on more of that positive sort of side of things it will almost take care of itself in terms of you know later down the line the platform wouldn't wobble as much if we were to start up an argument
1: in that situation yes well one of the main things if we look at that is as you say people can get caught up in that situation in a fairly unconscious way but what's happening people are going into fight or flight. Basically, people's frontal lobes are going to be switched off because just like an animal in a situation of threat, then people are going to be in that fight and flight mode. And another characteristic about that is one partner or the other might well become quite flooded. Flooded is this notion of being overwhelmed by emotion and stuck. That might also be where, or we could say, someone might freeze. Fight, flight and freeze, common reactions to threat. And one of the sad things about this is people are more likely to respond to this sense of threat because they do care about how their intimate partner reacts towards them. It can be a twisted way that people suffer more distress because they do care about their partner, even though their partner might think, oh, they're not listening to me, they don't care. And that's one of the things, again, the importance of remembering that foundation of having a deep friendship as a basis for a relationship so people notice the reactions that their partner's having and so they might be more likely to help that settle down in some way because there will be no good that comes from that situation continuing in fight and flight or fight flight and freeze and so you
0: know more about this than me but you know you talk about say 90 percent accuracy within 15 minutes in terms of the divorce rate like i believe in terms of the outcome of the argument it was like was it 96 percent within three minutes that they could predict the outcome of that argument so it seems to suggest that maybe you know, if you, if you can't be on three minutes, it's maybe a bit of a
1: fruitless exercise. Yes, that's the idea. Just as you say, if an argument is not resolved in three minutes or it's continuing on with heated conflict, as you say, 96% of the time, it will not be resolved. So if you're arguing for three minutes and getting nowhere, cut your losses, that is one of the main findings from the Gottman's research about this, it will tend to get nowhere. You're absolutely up against the odds. If it goes for three minutes, cut your losses. Allow one's partner to leave the room. Just quieten down. Just do something to disrupt that situation. Don't keep on going because what will tend to happen is the other patterns that are part of that 90% prediction, that accuracy, the other kind of patterns of behaviour will tend to evolve and occur in the sequence that I'll describe shortly. Well, what are those other
0: patterns, Dad? Let's get into them now because as you say, like this is, I suppose, maybe what traps we can fall into or at least are more likely to fall into. Maybe once we do go beyond that three-minute mark of having an argument where we're not necessarily getting to the bottom of anything, we're just sort of maybe arguing for the sake of arguing, And I believe that there was something that the Gottmans came up with called the four horsemen. So what are the four horsemen of a
1: relationship? Okay, so of course referring to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is where things turn out pretty bad. And so there were two that would tend to start off that would go together. Criticism and defensiveness. Now it might be more commonly one partner criticising and the other defending. But it could also be turning around the other way. But a pattern of criticism and defensiveness. Now just imagine if this builds up as a common pattern. Just imagine people are not nurturing their relationship, not nurturing and encouraging their fondness and admiration, responding to others' bids for attention, things that we talked about last week. Just say there's this pattern of sarcastic quips or just a little bit of a negative gesture or ignoring one's partner or just being overly defensive in responding if a partner asks you what otherwise might have been a neutral question now this can build up to be quite a pattern now imagine if that's happening a fair bit and if you're looking generally in healthy relationships to have a lot of positive messages to one negative and at least about three to one well we can see how things are going to go downhill pretty quickly. So that's where it tends to start. More common criticising and more common defending.
0: And so the way that I almost think about that is, you know, for example, when criticism comes up as a a response, it's almost like, when someone has an issue or if they have something that they want to discuss with you, and then you almost put it back on them as a person rather than just responding to the actual kind of issue or behavior that they want to raise. So it might so for example, if we look at a say reasonable request, it might be something like, Oh, can you say take the bins out? Might be a, a common one that you come across. And then so instead of, you know, making the request, oh, can you take the bins out, I suppose a criticism might be something like Why didn't you take the bins out, you know? You know it's always your job to take the bins out and you're always, you know, being slack with the bins and, you know, basically you're a failure at a broader level at taking the bins out than just failing to sort of do it in in this situation. And then defensiveness could be, for example, when they turn it back on the other person in a way. So, you know, the person comes in and says, you know, can you take the bins out? And the other person might respond... You know how busy I've been this week, and you know that I'm, you know, not in a position to take the bins out. I've been working so hard all day, and you know, basically, how dare you, you know, put that request on to me in this situation? Like it seems like the defensiveness is almost like turning it back on someone else, and then the criticism
1: is almost like just going to like a way deeper, more personal level. Yes, and so it becomes a bit like a dance. Each partner might think, oh, the other one's being mean to me or the other one's being unfair and sometimes just losing sight how there's this repeated pattern that each partner is getting into in terms of part of an interaction that can become a habit. And The key thing that the Gottmans were highlighting is when that habit becomes fairly stuck, that criticism and defensiveness, that is part of that slippery slope that tends to lead to then a couple of other characteristics.
0: Well, what are those other characteristics
1: then? Because, yeah, what, there were a couple more horsemen of the relationship apocalypse. What were they? Okay, one thing then is it tends to evolve into stonewalling. So rather than just being defensive, one partner might be more shut down or shutting out the other not so prepared to engage in discussions, not so prepared to engage in dialogue, so it's more difficult to generate even positive communication. And that's going to be more likely if there's been a pattern of criticism and defending and one person is feeling flooded, say maybe defending and feeling flooded with emotion and then looking to numb that down or shut that down more and just think, look, I'm out of here, I'm checking out of here. And so stonewalling, is like a kind of avoidance, a disengagement. But then it makes more difficult for each partner to develop some kind of positive connection and that intimacy and the trust tends to erode.
0: And it seems to me that, say, for example, like stonewalling seems to be a little bit different from like taking some time where, you know, you might sort of come back to it a little bit later. Like it's maybe a little bit different to just, you know, not respond to someone and completely ignore them as opposed to saying, look... I." I just need five or ten minutes here. I'm just going to go for a walk around the block and then I can come back and and sort of chat to you and, and feel a little bit more grounded, even just in my own personal emotions. But I suppose the other one that comes to mind with that is like, I think we can all at times be maybe a little guilty of, of being distracted at times. You know, you might even sort of just be on your phone and it takes you an extra second to respond to someone who's asked you a question. Like, I suppose what that leads me to think is that, you know, it just highlights, I suppose, the disrespect that that can give at times in terms of, you know, potentially stonewalling. It might not necessarily be, I'm not talking to you and I'm ignoring you right now. But even, you know, say just being on your phone or sort of not being as committed in a particular situation, like it seems that there can be degrees of stonewalling in terms of there can be degrees to which you don't want to communicate. It's not as if you're just going to completely ignore someone at all times, but there can be that element of, you know, I'm I'm just not dealing with you right now, however that's going to come across.
1: Yes, and so what you're describing there is the importance of recognising and responding to one's partner's bids for attention earlier on. Like that's the thing when a relationship is healthy and when people are relating well to each other but they're also nurturing their relationship by responding to each other, noticing their partner's interest in connecting with them and appreciating that and feeling grateful for that because that shows the caring and the interest and love that's there. That's the importance of responding to these things when our relationships are healthy because as we're talking about now, we're talking about patterns down the track, when often people have allowed those reactions or habits to slip, not being as responsive to each other, and that's when these things tend to lead. So again, criticism, defensiveness, then stonewalling, and then what that can evolve to is contempt. Now, when the Gottmans recognised the signs of contempt and identified that, and especially if they were repeated or more frequent, that was particularly the reaction that would help predict divorce in combination with these other kind of factors, but particularly contempt. Now what might that be? That might be eye-rolling, it might be sneering, it might be name-calling. Certainly it could be more frequently in terms of a kind of sarcasm, which often reflects contempt. It could be hostile humour. The person might think, oh, look, I was just joking, But really, it was a degree of hostility behind it. So it's these rejecting kind of messages. Now, if people get to that stage, that really is a late stage of distress. And it's important, if people recognise that, do what you can to cut out the contempt. That is a killer for relationships. That really can destroy affection over a period of time. And so... I think it was the sequence that the Gottmans described as well. a Criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, then contempt, that would then tend to lead on to parallel lives. Parallel lives, well, people might feel that they can barely stand each other. They might be in different rooms. They might be quite detached from each other, not so much engagement. People might be going through the motions in their everyday life or their roles as a... Father, mother, husband, wife, on the surface, there might look to be, you know people engaging in certain kind of roles, but when the contempt is there with those gestures, that's a killer. So a key thing is not allowing it to get to that stage, but certainly not allowing it to stay at that stage. People really need to pull back from that. and otherwise, it's likely to drift more towards the parallel lives scenario. Well, I think it's such
0: a fascinating context to look at not just a relationship because, you know, it seems like things can get pretty difficult if there is that element of contempt because, you know, one thing that I think about when I think of contempt is this aspect of almost like moral judgment. Like it seems to me that, you know, if we look at, say, the other three horsemen – you know, potentially they're about, say, building up a narrative about, say, the other person in terms of, you know, this person isn't validating me, so I'm going to be proactive about it and, you know, get on the front foot and not validate them sort of thing. But this idea of contempt, it's almost like when that's gotten so far that now there's an element of almost looking down on the other person. And I think that, Way you describe that in terms of parallel lives, like that's such an interesting way of describing it. Like the way that you spoke about that there, like to me, what it suggests is you know, if we get to the stage where we're living a parallel life with someone, in some ways we're incentivized to look down on them because if we were, you know, previously connected in a way that, you know, we felt really integrated with them as a person and now we've split, well, the two kind of options are to kind of go, well, it's, you know, it's them that you know, grew apart from me and there's certain aspects that I no longer want to associate with or it's me and I've changed and even though that was something that I, you know, used to love and was hugely a part of myself, I've actually gone to a different place than that now and that can lead to a whole lot of, you know, confusion into, you know, who, who am I and all this sort of stuff. Like, it just seems to me that it would be so much easier to look upon someone with contempt if you had developed these kind of negative narratives about the relationship and who you are in the relationship and how they see you. Uh, yeah, it just seems that it's an interesting way to look at it in terms of, I think, if you look down on someone, if you get to that stage, yeah, it's very hard to come back from. But to me, that's a central part of contempt, that looking down.
1: Yes, and really not appreciating one's partner as an other. And like you're saying, that judgment, that negative judgment, being a part of it. And one of the things about this, of course, is a whole lot of this is quite unconscious, the way it evolves. It can be bit by bit. And at first it can be people being a little bit inattentive to each other. It can be people getting caught up in other kind of demands. It could be people being overly preoccupied with other kind of concerns and in whatever way not noticing their partner, not nurturing their relationship. And so that's one of the things of calling out this pattern as the Gottmans have done. And I see this very often in troubled couple relationships. You see things have got to a certain kind of stage. And the helpful thing is when people can be conscious about these kind of difficulties and these traps, as we've described them, coming up, because the first point is prevention, of course, But once these patterns have started to be established in some way, it's looking actively at pulling back from that. And I can mention a couple of examples later on where that's come up in therapy situations, but it's being consciously aware of these patterns.
0: Well, I wonder how it does play out like in a practical sense, because I suppose like on a broad surface level, you know, if we love someone, you know, we might have, say, children with someone, We might be married for a number of years, like... On the surface level, of course, we're going to broadly be loving of them and caring of them and that's, you know, potentially why we're getting so worked up in some situations. So how does it play out where maybe some of these negative reactions become a little bit more surface level?
1: Okay, well, I'll give one example of where it came up with a particular couple that just reminded me of a pattern with a number of other couples but it was so stark in this particular situation. I was seeing. A husband and wife and each of them would have an opportunity of saying what their hopes were from the session and we started to talk about some of the issues that came up between them or where things might be difficult and what became very apparent is in the session itself and right from the start the husband would tend to make frequent critical comments after his wife had said something or just in between. Very often in the session He'd just be saying these little critical kind of quips. Now, of course, this was happening so frequently at home, and this was a feature of what the wife was expressing at the time. And she was prepared to bring this up, and she was prepared to engage in the conversation about this, which was a positive sign. She hadn't just checked out, if you like. She hadn't just disengaged. This hurt her clearly when he made these kind of common negative critical quips. And so I'll just mention, because the pattern was so obvious and clear, and yet there are a number of other positive aspects about their relationship, they both showed that they were invested in it in certain ways. When it boiled down to it, a key thing early on was describing this pattern of the four horsemen. To both the husband and the wife, but particularly directing that aspect to the husband, it had been even clear since they'd been there that day, the contact that we'd had, that he was making these frequent critical quips. Just emphasize to him, basically, you need to zip it. When you get this sense or this impulse to say something critical... That is likely to be very destructive to your relationship. Nothing much is likely to come after that. Now, I often wouldn't highlight so much directly to one partner as I'm describing this situation. It's important for marital therapy to be a bit even-handed, if you like. But it was so obvious this pattern just highlighted this fellow. If he kept on doing that, they would likely end up apart. It was hard to see how they would get around if he continued that. He needed to zip it. Now, there are a number of other things that we discussed for that there are a number of other issues to address in different ways but he actually got that he was actually pulled up by it he was maybe surprised by the extent to which that came across and he did quite well to curb those critical comments he was much more aware of it because he actually basically did want his relationship to continue and so he had to face that prospect but i'll just mention if that's a pattern in a relationship and someone notices that, oh, they are making a number of critical comments. The first thing I would say, if people can learn to zip it, just cutting back on that negative energy is enough to sometimes make quite a significant difference to the tensions that there are on a daily basis in the household. So what can people do
0: then, Dad? Because you know, if people start to recognise some of these patterns, potentially they've been in place for a little while and potentially they're maybe even one or two stages down the line in terms of maybe the criticism and defensiveness developed and then some stonewalling came out of that and then eventually contempt. Like, what can people do if they recognise some of that within their own
1: relationship? Look, I'd say the most important thing, and you certainly notice this with each couple that you see, it's to do with people really reflecting on how much they want the relationship to continue. Certainly if it could be a more healthy relationship, how much do people want to put in that effort? How much do people have the preference? They would really wish their relationship to continue. What good things could come out of that? Now, part of that is remembering why they were in the relationship in the first place, but part of it is also reflecting on why they came to therapy, what their hopes were from that, or if people aren't in a therapy situation, just really reflecting on What's most important to them in a relationship? Would there be potential ways that they could cultivate that further? And I'd encourage people to think of what can they bring to a relationship? What kind of positive energy can they put into it? Now, if any partner in a relationship does the kind of things that the Gottmans would describe looking at that positive connection with one's partner. That can include some things that they recommend, like even finding out something your partner is doing that day before they leave for the day, looking to connect up with your partner at the end of the day, kind words, positive gestures. If your partner asks you to do something, most of the time, uh, just saying yes and happily doing that. So just showing that interest in your partner, putting that positive energy in, that invites one's partner to do the same. But the thing that I notice again and again and again in couples' relationships, how things go down the track, it depends on the direction that things are going in. Sometimes people might seem to have more mild difficulties, but the more that maybe you talk about things further the more it seems evident that people have been drifting apart and it might become clear that they already have really been launching at parallel pathways for some time, even though that might have been disguised or hidden in some ways. Or maybe people's arguments just tend to escalate further or their signs of contempt seem to really persist or get worse. But you see other people other partners who might seem to have quite a troubled relationship where things improve where they've thought about why they would prefer their relationship to continue all things being equal if it could be more positive relationship where they're making an effort to cut back on criticism, where they're looking to spend more positive time with their partner in a particular kind of way. You see, sometimes people make an effort that shows that they really would prefer the relationship to continue. They might be remembering more why they might want to be in a relationship in the first place. And I'll give one example. Many years ago, I saw a couple who were virtually living parallel lives There was certainly a lot of distance between them. I'd say that one partner had largely checked out or on the surface had, but I noticed one thing that stood out. As they talked about their troubled relationship over many years, despite a very strong positive start to their relationship, I noticed that as they were talking even about these conflictual situations, their bodies were turned toward each other. And at the end of the session... That was one of the main things I pointed out to them. I said it struck me how despite the obvious conflict between them, if they just noticed their bodies and their posture and how they were sitting, they're actually turning toward each other. Actually, if you didn't know the kind of things that they were talking about or saying about each other or their conflict, you would think that they were reasonably well connected. That reflection back to them was enough for them to remember how they got together in the first place, how important and positive their relationship was. There were some quite challenging or traumatic things that happened early in their relationship and they'd never really recovered from that. But in recognising that they actually had that deeper desire to rekindle some of that earlier connection, they remembered that and then they were able to make a lot of the efforts to build further closeness into their relationship and they were quite happily married for quite a number of years afterwards until sadly one of them contracted a serious form of cancer this was many years ago where there weren't such good treatments but they lived very well together for many many years I knew a friend of theirs who often commented on how happy they'd seemed with each other despite having that conflict and distance between them for many years earlier
0: Oh, it shows that, uh, yeah, you, s- you certainly can overcome some of these difficulties, Dad. And I suppose that it's a very interesting story, that idea of uh, when you just reflected that simple comment back to them and it sort of changed a lot for them. Like, I suppose one of the things I've sort of, you know, come to think about over the last couple of episodes is, you know, it seems to me with, like intimate relationships, almost as much as anything in life, like they're open to paradigm shifts. You know, you can be in a situation and, you know, he's... A week later, things can, you know, seem very, very different to how they were a week ago. And and it seems to me that that's maybe in the negative aspect of things, you know. If something maybe comes between two people, of course, that's going to, you know, quite drastically change the nature of the relationship. But like that reflection of the positivity that those two people had to each other like it seems that you can have positive paradigm shifts as well and you know maybe something like having a child getting married like there are these kind of positive paradigm shifts that occur throughout life and maybe help us sort of reconnect in in a bit more of a a larger way than just say the gradual say Build up of positive interaction, sort of thing. So it seems to me that, yeah, like I think, you know, maybe the way that we speak about some of these things, talking about, say, the amount of marriages that end in divorce and all this sort of stuff, like we can maybe focus on the negative paradigm shifts and, you know, even stuff like if you were to write a TV show, you're not going to be looking at too many of the positive paradigm shifts unless it's maybe one of those sort of soppy ones, you know. Not, not my cup of tea as much, Dad, but, uh, but it seems to me that I think if we can recognise that, you know, although there can be negative paradigm shifts in a relationship, well, yeah, there can also be positive ones, and that maybe, you know, gives us something extra. It's not as if it's just those kind of, you know, minute positive interactions and that's all we have. There are actually kind of other things that happen too, which I suppose kick things back in our favour, for lack of a better term.
1: Yes, and when you mention shifts, it reminds me again of Esther Perel's comments that people might have three different long-term relationships in adult life. Sometimes with the same person, there's that inevitable shift in stages of a relationship. And key times, early on, it might be when people are dating and going out together, say before having children. Then there's going to be that fundamental stage for many people of a relationship including raising children and then there's a later stage of a relationship often when children have left home people might be looking at retirement different stage of life that way one thing i'd like to highlight here is when people look at happiness levels of happiness at different ages people tend to have a lower level of happiness in the middle years including the child rearing years Now, on the surface, that might look like it's not such a positive thing for child-rearing. However, that's often what adds enormous amount of meaning, purpose and meaning to people's relationships. And that reminds me of one thing that the Gottmans described as well about the importance of having shared meaning. So happiness is not always about having to be up all the time. For people's well-being and healthy relationships, it also can be about For example, the shared meaning of raising children, being part of that, making a home, making a life for yourselves as being more than just an individual person, so to speak. And then later on, what tends to happen is people's subjective happiness levels tend to increase again in the later years, say 50s and 60s, if people have their physical health and people tend to have more freedom in their leisure time then. But through these stages, people are also looking to adjust their roles, including within a relationship. So, if people allow for that, because many people who have troubled relationships, sometimes there have been so many other demands or so many other roles that people have had, sometimes they haven't nurtured their relationship as much as they might. And again, I'll come back to one thing from the Dalai Lama. Remember, people asked him once, saying, What's the most important? For their parent to prioritise their couple relationship or their nurturing and caring for their children. The Dalai Lama basically said, look, both of these things are very important. And of course it's very important to nurture your children. But also remember, it's the relationship that came first. I think that's a nice reminder and sometimes it might take at least... That bit of active effort, especially if people do small things on a daily and weekly basis, that's more important than thinking, oh, but we'll have a holiday together in three months' time and that'll make up for the time we haven't spent with each other. No, you need to nurture that, nurture your fondness and admiration on a daily basis.
0: I think that's a a great point to finish on dad and and thank you for chatting with me about all this today I must admit as a a single bloke in my late 20s I wasn't necessarily sure how much I'd have to add to all this but uh I think you've carried us well and uh and we'll also just mention as well like we will have a, a break now for a for a week or so and um you're heading away aren't you I know you are yeah off to somewhere I'm very jealous and and yeah, basically, but when we do come back, we'll have an interview, I believe. And, and I don't, I don't, are we going to even
1: say who that is, Dad, or are we just going to leave it with a little tease? Look, I think we can, we're going to be interviewing Lisa Buxbaum, a friend of mine and a colleague who's very interested in synchronicity. And so Lisa has recently written a book, and we'll be talking about that. But Lisa is a colleague also involved in a project which is called the Coincidence Project. It's an international project of people who are interested in synchronicity authors and others who teach about synchronicity and how we can draw on it in our everyday lives and lisa is one of my favorite people that i've met through that interest so i'm very much looking forward to that rowan
0: well so am i dad it's going to be uh, yeah great to chat with lisa and lisa's also i believe in america as well so we're going global dad we're, uh, <laughs> we're at, we've reached beyond the shores of australia and it'll be great to chat with lisa but thank you for chatting with me about all this today i'll look forward to the next one
1: look forward to it rowan